So we're going to read from Acts chapter 28, verses 17 to 31. You can follow along um, on your phone or on your Bible or uh, up here on the screen. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And the he here is Paul. And when they had gathered, Paul said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet... I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain." And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil against you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen." He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So this past week, Jen and I uh, returned from a week-long vacation to California. And when we were in California and we met with our friends there, they said, wait, you haven't been on a trip or on a plane in like uh, four years and the place you chose to come was here. Um, the jet lag is for real, uh, for real, especially with the young kids. And California is a strange place. Like all the houses are very like close together and I've never seen a collection of worse drivers in my entire life. Like when I was driving there, I honked at the first six people that I was behind. And then I realized in California, just everyone's on their phone. And the light turns green and they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> let me finish my text. And then they move. So I was like, okay, this is a, a strange place. This is a different place. The reason that we went there was to see friends and friends that we haven't seen in like five or six years. And when you close your eyes and you think about people you haven't seen in such a long time, a couple of different options come to mind. You can think about the last time that you saw them. So when I close my eyes and think about some of the people that we met in California, I imagine a last meal at Hill Country Barbecue eating fatty brisket, or I think about sleepovers that we had or staying up um, and uh, talking and praying for people before they left. I think about dropping people off at the airport. You think about the last memory that you had with that person. But another option you can have is to think about a core memory 
that encapsulates who that person is. And so some of these guys, we stayed up all night in Central Park waiting in line for Shakespeare in the park. So I thought about that. Some of these guys, we uh, vacationed together and just thought about all the different things that we were able to see. Some of these guys, I thought about worshiping together in this place. When you are thinking about someone you haven't seen for a long time, you can either think about the last time that you saw them or you can think about a core memory that encapsulate who that person is. And sometimes those are one and the same. Today, we are looking at the very last passage in the book of Acts. And Acts, 28 chapters ago, started with the resurrected Christ hanging out with his disciples saying, the Holy Spirit will come, and when he comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit descends, and then explosions start happening throughout the early church. Tongues of fire fall. Peter preaches. Thousands are converted. There's a miraculous uh, healing at the gate called beautiful in front of the temple. And then all of a sudden, the church starts facing some resistance. Not only that, there's resurrection. There's miraculous healing. And then you have persecution and martyrdom. Stephen, the first deacon, is martyred. And not only him, but even James, the apostle, is martyred. And from there, the church, against its will, spreads out into a new place. And all of a sudden, the gospel spreads from an inner circle of Jewish people, starts touching Ethiopian eunuchs, starts touching Samaritans, starts touching Gentiles, and the church is faced with its first major crisis. How does this faith relate to the traditions that we all grew up with? Should everybody be circumcised, or is faith enough? And the church encountered this massive problem and successfully overcame it by emphasizing faith. Faith is the new circumcision. You don't need to do anything external. You only need to believe. And from there, we have three prison breaks, two for Peter, one for Paul. We have a shipwreck, and we have the gospel finally moving from Jerusalem and Asia and Greece and now In Acts chapter 28, it has arrived in Rome. And the main character in the second half of the book of Acts is a guy named Paul. He was converted on the Damascus Road from being a persecutor of Christians into one of its most ardent missionaries. And he had traveled by foot, by horse, by ship. He traveled alone with friends and under Roman guards over 10,000 miles on four separate missionary journeys to share the gospel. That's going back and forth from New York to California four times. This is what this guy did in the ancient world. And here we have Luke's final picture of what this person is about. And when you read it, it seems a little abrupt. You're like, wait, this is how Luke wants to leave us with this guy just doing the same thing that he's been doing over and over again? It's like reading a book and then recognizing that the last two pages have been torn out or watching a movie like Dune or Into the Spider-Verse and you realize, oh, as a part two, I, w- I thought I was going to get the end. It's over two hours long, but you realize, ugh, there's more to be told. And when you first read what Luke has to say about Paul, you get the same feeling. Wait, this can't be the last picture that Luke wants us to have of him. But when you take a closer look at why he might have chosen this, you see that Luke is trying to leave us with a warning and a model for how the church should be in mission. So with that, let's pray, and then we'll look at this passage together. Dear God, we just thank you so much for all the ways that you are working in our church, working in our hearts. Um, The church is not about where we meet, 
It's about the spirit that binds us together. It's about the spirit that changes our hearts. It's about the spirit that causes us to forget about how worried we are about all the things that we're going through and instead see a God who is mighty, a God who is going to do things that even if he were to tell us what he was going to do, we would have a hard time believing them. God, get our hearts out of this earthly worry and care and anxiety and help us to fix our eyes on things above so that we can hear your voice and start feeling in our hearts this sense of anticipation for all of the things that you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, this is not the end of Paul's life. He ends up living for another five years. And when you know the rest of Paul's story, and when you look at the literary conventions that were available at the time, it is very surprising that Luke would have chosen this as his ending. Ever since chapter 21, Luke has been leading up to a showdown between Paul and Caesar. Caesar, the empire, emperor of the entire Roman Empire, the most powerful man in all of the world. And we know at some point, Paul, in fact, did encounter Caesar on this two-year stay. In Philippians 4, he sends a greeting to the church and says, there are greetings coming from within Caesar's household. So Paul is obviously within that orbit, but Luke does not mention anything about Paul encountering Caesar, even though for the last seven chapters he's been pushing this narrative, Paul versus Caesar, Paul versus Caesar, Paul versus Caesar, and Caesar never shows up. If he had picked that ending, then we would have seen Paul as this great defender of the faith, rubbing shoulders with the highest members of society. This is the ending that would have been appropriate for Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer at the Diet of Worms, where he stood before the Holy Roman Empire and said, here I stand, I can do no other, and defended his gospel. Probably more uh, familiar to us, this is the same ending that happened in Gladiator, while Russell Crowe finally faces off against Joaquin Phoenix in the Colosseum. You are waiting and anticipating the showdown between this person and the most powerful person in the empire, and Paul never gets there in Acts. Luke leaves us saying, wait, whatever happened to this Caesar storyline? Luke, the author of Acts, could have also followed the example of the Gospels and focused on Paul's death. And here, there's so much that he could have written about. After these two years that verse 30 mentions that Paul was in Rome, he gets released. How he gets released, we don't know. And he eventually goes to Spain. But in Spain, there was no Hebrew speakers and there's no Greek speakers. The highest officials probably spoke Latin, and Paul's Latin was garbage, so he could not share anything with the people there, so he decides to return to Asia. In 64 AD, two years after this happens, there's a great fire that starts burning in Rome, and 10 out of the 14 districts are burned to the ground. And once that happens, the emperor at the time, Nero, says, I'm going to build my palace on this ground that has been burned over. And people said, wait a minute, this guy might have been the guy to start the fire if he's going to be the one who's going to benefit from it. And so what did Nero do? Instead of taking the blame, he, sends, he ends up scapegoating Christians and saying Christians are the one who set fire to Rome. And all of a sudden, we had the first empire-wide persecution of Christians. Paul is in Asia at the time. He goes, I can't just sit by. He returns to Rome, tries to strengthen the church, is rearrested, and on that trip, he is beheaded for the gospel. That is how Paul dies, as a martyr. 
And throughout his life, Paul has been saying, I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. The goal of my life is to suffer as Christ suffered for the sake of the gospel. And here, based on his life and based off of the literary pattern in the gospels, we have a very great way for Luke to say, this is a place where I should end it with a hero's death. But he doesn't do that either. He doesn't leave us with Paul as a great defender of the faith. He doesn't leave us with Paul as a great martyr. Instead, he leaves us with Paul in action doing ministry. And you go, okay, if you're going to show me Paul in action, you're probably going to show me Paul at his best. And we have an example of that earlier in chapter 28. He gets shipwrecked on an island, and then there are these native people around. He's probably the first to share the gospel with them. He's sharing the gospel with them. He's building a fire. All of a sudden, a snake comes out, bites him on the hand, and the people there go, oh my God, this guy is cursed. Even though he escaped shipwreck, a snake was sent by the gods to poison him. Paul just shakes it off into the fire and he survives. And the people said, he is not cursed. He is a God. And then all of a sudden they're all into what Paul is saying. He goes to the most powerful man on the island, heals his father, ends up healing everybody on the, on the island. And then it says that the people greatly honored Paul. Now, if you want to focus on Paul as a missionary, that would have been the place to stop Paul's story. But Paul is not left to us like that. Instead, he is left in this anticlimactic story that ends the entire book. How does Acts 28 actually end? Not with Paul as a great defender, not with Paul as a great hero, not with Paul as a great missionary. Instead, he finally gets to Rome and he doesn't call Caesar. He calls all the Jewish leaders and he defends himself against the charge of being anti-Jewish And it's the same exact defense that he's given for the last seven years. He's repeating himself over and over again. And based off of Romans, the book that he wrote, uh, the letter that he wrote a couple years earlier, we know that Paul has another motive. He wants a new missionary base in order to go to Spain, just like he had with Antioch and Ephesus. And here he's trying to get in good with the leaders of Rome to say, if you will sponsor my trip, this would be great. But the Jewish leaders go, we've never even heard of you. We have no idea who you are. But about this Christianity, we've heard a lot. And we want to hear what you have to say. So Paul goes again and talks about the kingdom of God. He talks about Jesus from the law and the prophets. And again, this is the same message that Paul has been giving since chapter 9. And in verse 24, we find out something surprising. Unlike on the island of Malta, where the people greatly honored him, verse 24 tells us some people believed him and some people did not. And at the end, everybody left him offended because of something that he said from Isaiah chapter 6. And that leaves us with this very interesting question. Why does Luke end Paul's life here at this anticlimactic, repetitive, half-effective portrait of who Paul is? When you look closely, you find that there's two distinct reasons why this would be the case. The first reason is Luke is leaving the church with a warning. In Acts, the fire is an uncontrollable, the spirit is an uncontrollable fire that spreads. And the only thing that can slow it down is the human heart. And when you look at verses 26 and 27, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 6 and saying, you people have ears, but you don't hear. You have eyes, but you don't see. Your hearts are hardened and you cannot even notice the thing that is right in front of you. 
And when you look in Isaiah where those words were originally penned, Isaiah is a prophet to the kingdom of Israel and to the kingdom of Judah right as Assyria was on the rise. And in order to prevent against this disaster, what did the Israelites do? They turned to foreign gods and they turned to politics. They started making alliances with Egypt. Basically, they started forming their security and their hope in things other than God, so that when Isaiah was speaking to them, even though he was speaking clearly right in front of them, their eyes were focused on something else. And this is a problem you see all over the place in New York. It's a problem you see all over the place in LA. People should be watching where they're going, but instead they're on their phones. And then all of a sudden you'll see them walk into a glass door, or all of a sudden you see them wander into traffic and somebody has to stop them. The same thing is happening here, except for us, we're not worried about Egypt and we're not worried about false gods, but maybe our source of security is from something else. It's from our talent, it's from our position, it's from our bank account, it's from our networks. And when we hear this gospel, which we've heard over and over again, it kind of washes over us. and We go, yeah, 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 I've heard that before, but we really only get excited about this other thing. When Paul is using these words in the first century, he is addressing a different phenomenon. He's talking to first century Jews. Now here it's important to be explicit about something we've only kind of danced around. And I've only danced around it because I trust that you are good listeners and When you hear it, you're able to interpret it in the right way. But there is a legitimate charge that the book of Acts and many of the Gospels are anti-Semitic, meaning anti-Jewish. Because of the label that Luke uses, the Jews, and because of critiques like this, a lot of people will hear this type of literature and say, the Gospels themselves are anti-Jewish. Now, we have to be careful here because when you look at what happens throughout history, History bears this out. Once Christians gain power over the empire, they start persecuting Jews. They start putting them in neighborhoods where only they can live and they cannot participate in regular society. And worst of all, they use Christian texts like this to justify persecution throughout its history. So there is a legitimate concern that what we're reading could be strewed as anti-Jewish. But when you look more carefully at what happened, you realize Paul, Peter, Jesus, all of the earliest followers were Jewish. When you read Paul's letters, he loves his heritage. He says, you have the best law. You have the best tradition. You have the best covenant. The Messiah came from you. You are the most special people on all of the earth. And I wish to God that you would just believe as I believe. Paul is being truthful. He is not anti-Jewish. He loves his people And so what Paul is talking about here is not a racial problem. It's not a problem with tradition. It's a problem that extends to all of human nature. The human body is amazing because it has the ability to adapt to continuous stimulus. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is this. Some of us probably have very bad breath and some of us probably have very bad odors coming from our body but we don't smell it and we don't know that we have bad breath and we don't know that we have bad odors until somebody comes and then they make a face and we go, oh, I must smell. And you also have this weird sensation in the morning when you woke up, you put on your clothes and you felt them. But now as you're sitting here, you don't even recognize that you're wearing clothes. Your body has gotten used to it and it no longer sends signals to your brain saying clothes, 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 smell, smell, smell. What happens? After a while, Your body gets used to the stimulus that's there and it no longer registers as something new, something fresh. And by the time the Jews had heard Paul speak, they had had the promises of God for years 
and it no longer struck them as something that they should listen to, but they had gotten so used to it that it washed over them like a wave. And when you look at what the problem is going to be moving forward for the church, the main obstacle is not going to come from outside. It's going to come from here. We have had the promises of God for the last 2,000 years, and there is a strong temptation as we read God's word, as we listen in worship, as we worship together, to simply go, I've heard that all before, blah, 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 blah. And like in Charlie Brown, we hear, wah, 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 wah. Our hearts are hard, our ears don't hear, our eyes don't see. The only thing that can keep the Spirit from doing exactly what it should be doing is our hearts getting used to the things that we do and no longer being able to see it afresh. The problem here that Paul and Luke are trying to emphasize is Christianity is not a faith or a tradition that has to be protected, something that has to be kept inside. It is something that must be lived out. And if you are sitting here letting what we do simply just wash over you week in and week out, you are in danger of having your ears here but never perceiving, having your eyes see but never understanding. God is calling us not just to passively sit by, but to actively lean in to the things that we're studying, to read God's word, to listen, to say, God, what is it you are asking me to do? And not sitting by and just being okay with going through the motions, but saying, God, there is something you're calling me to do. What is it? And that is one reason that Luke ends here. A warning to the church. Do not let your hearts grow numb to the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Don't just allow a couple minutes on Sunday to be the only time you really think about what God wants from you. Press into him and say, God, how can I walk with you today? But there is another reason that Luke ends his story here, and that is this. He wants to give us an inspiration for what the church mission should be. The church will not always be thriving. It will not always be Paul in Malta where people heralded him as a god and thought that he was great. It will not always be gravy. It will not always be smooth. The Christians will not always be well-liked. This place will not always be filled with talented people. This place will not always be a place of innovation. This place will not always be a place of effectiveness. In Acts 28, chapter uh, verses 17 to 31, Paul is meeting with people and he's saying the same thing over and over and over again. Nothing new. Not only that, he is in chains. He's facing obstacles to his ministry. Not only that, when he's preaching, it's not that thousands are converted. Half of the people believe in, and half of the people think he's crazy, and all of them leave. Paul is tired, he's in chains, he's repeating himself, and he's not even effective at what he's doing. And this is Luke deciding to end the story here because he wants to give us a realistic picture of what the church and mission is like instead of a romanticized picture. When I was young, I watched a lot of romantic comedies. And I thought falling in love was going to be like what I saw there. You know, like you go on a date and then you both like pick up the napkin at the same time and then your fingers touch and then there's electricity and then a ring pops out of your pocket and you go, I guess we're going to get married and then it's all great. And from those type of endings, you think that's what marriage is. But um, 
as you probably know, when marriage is not that at all, it's like who's going to get up first to get the kids? <laughs> it's who's going to clean? Who's going to do the dishes this time? That is a realistic picture of what it means to be in a relationship. But in that, you find true meaning, true happiness that extends not to just high points, but even to all of life. And that is what Luke is doing here. This is what the church in mission will be like. Sometimes you'll face obstacles. Sometimes you feel like you're just saying the same thing over and over again. Sometimes you share and some people like what you have to say and other people hate what you have to say. Sometimes you just feel like you're turning your wheels over and over again and nothing seems to be going well. Luke leaves us with this picture of Paul to say, this is what mission in the church will look like. So what do we do? We do verses 30 and 31. Paul, for two years in his house, what did he do? He welcomed anybody that came into his doors. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He taught about Jesus from the scriptures. And he did it with boldness. And he did it without hindrance. The very last word in the book of Acts is a contracted prepositional phrase, without hindrance. He could easily have said, you know what, no one's listening to me. I don't want to do this anymore. He could easily have said, I'm in these chains. I feel like I'm facing all these obstacles. Church is too hard. I don't want to do it anymore. He could easily have said, I keep saying the same thing over and over and over again, and I'm getting tired and sick of it. I think I should just sit back. But Paul does not do that. What does he do? He does these things, and he does them without hindrance. He does not let anything stop him from being the person that God has called him to be. Thus ends the series on the book of Acts. Uh, We've gone through this book for an entire year, and in June of 2022, Sam and I sat down and said, hey, we're going to preach through Acts. What do you want to get out of this for our church? And we created a list. And so this is the list. Uh, By the end of this, we hope that the church, in the midst of the changes that are happening, are ready to be surprised by God's work. We hope that we destroy a reliance on ourselves, but instead start relying on the Spirit. We hope that we will be able to witness the Spirit's power in healing and in resurrection, in bringing new life to the people in here and outside of here. We hope that the church will start looking at disadvantages as opportunities. When the church was persecuted, it spread, but from there, the Gentiles came in to the kingdom of God. We hope that we can see the church as an instrument of mercy. The church was not just about teaching, but it elected deacons and deacons fed widows. We hope that we will have a renewed sense of hope for the church and a passion for the mission of the church, excited to see what God will do. And nobody could have guessed that this would have happened until after Wednesday. Again, the church is facing an obstacle. All of a sudden, we've got to leave this place. We've got to switch times. We've got to go to a new place. And there is a strong temptation, as it happens, to shut off your ears, shut off your eyes, shut off your brains, and go, you know what, this is too hard. This is not what I signed up for. I do not want to be part of this church and what it has to do moving forward. If that is the only reason that you would leave, that would be a mistake. God has something in store for this church that we could not possibly fathom or imagine. 
God, throughout history, has used unexpected changes, even things that seem like disadvantages, to do something even more powerful and great. God is calling our church, no matter where we meet, no matter when we meet, to welcome everybody that comes, to proclaim the kingdom of God, to teach about Jesus, and to do it with boldness, and to do it without hindrance. With that, let's pray, and then uh, we'll continue to reflect as we worship. Um, Yeah, the church needs prayer right now. I'm sure a lot of you guys need prayer too. Um, and we would love to pray for you. If you're around on Tuesdays, please feel free to come and share there. But while we are gathered together, maybe for the next five minutes before we sing our first song, let's just pray for our church. Um, There's so many changes and transitions that are going to be happening. Of course, pray for yourself and your role within the church, but also just pray for the church. God, I pray that the people in this church would not have um, closed off ears and eyes, but instead be willing to see you move in a new and powerful way. I pray that this church would not be so closed, but be open to anybody that comes through these doors. I pray that we would not allow our hearts to be callous, but instead actively, hungrily, longingly, passionately ask, God, what are you calling me to do? How can I follow you this year? If we have those things, the space doesn't matter, the time doesn't matter, the Spirit will be here, and it's that same Spirit that spread like a fire in Acts that will be available to our church no matter where we go. So let's just spend five minutes, I know it'll seem like a while, but let's just spend five minutes before we sing our first song together, just lifting up the church, lift up the people, lift up the mission, lift up the leaders, lift up yourself.